Hi, this is Ben Lola, Back to the Bible Canada. Today, Dr. Newfeld is beginning Romans chapter 2 and teaching on God's Word to basically good people. Throughout the program, we'll talk about the judgment of others and the importance of repentance in our lives. Open your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 2, and let's join Dr. Newfeld. I'm reading from Romans 2, 1 to 5. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things, and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. I think Romans 2, 1 to 5 should be entitled God's Word to Basically Good People. I hope you understand that in giving that title, my, my tongue is firmly in my cheek. The entire point of the first two and a half chapters of Romans is to help all of us come to the same conclusion. Paul will come to in Romans 3.10 when he says, There is none righteous, no, not one. That's not a theological statement only. It's something that we individually need to feel and experience and deeply own. But there are not a few people, perhaps if we're honest, we're ourselves or among them, who imagine that we are in fact good people after all. Thomas Hobbes wrote of people, in his words, who are forced to keep themselves in their own favor by observing the imperfections of other men. Another way of saying that is to notice how easy it is for us to feel good about ourselves by keeping track of the failures of others. The sins we condemn in others are often the very ones we excuse in ourselves. We have taken some time over Romans 1. Romans 1 to 4 are the heart of the Christian message, and Romans 1 is intended as a declaration of the guilt of all humanity. Let me put in a nutshell what it teaches. It teaches that God is angry because of human sin, and this angry God has already begun to reveal his anger by giving us up or handing us over into depravity. When evil takes root in the human heart, we begin to call what is good evil and what is evil good. People whom God has given up to their depravity, Paul says, commit shameless acts and continue to do them, but also voice their approval when others do the same. I imagine anyone listening will think of examples of evil people who act just like the description Paul gives in the first half of Romans 1. And Paul knows that a lot of us can read Romans 1 and say, hey man, preach it, brother. I love it when you condemn sin. There's so much sin in the world and finally someone is taking the time to point it out and preaching against it. You know, it's possible to hear all of chapter 1 and, and not even be bothered by it at all but rather to feel justified and, and more righteous than ever. So when we come to chapter 2, Paul begins an imaginary dialogue with a self-described basically good person. Bible teachers are somewhat divided over whether this imaginary person is an observant first century Jew or whether Paul has in mind both Jews and Gentiles. You know, for my part, I think Paul is still speaking to everyone, Jew and Gentile. By verse 17, Paul will speak specifically to the Jews, and when he begins that passage, he begins with these words, but if you call yourself a Jew. 
But for now, he has in mind, I think, either a Jew or a Gentile who thinks of himself or herself as a basically good person. I think that because in Paul's day, there were a number of Gentile thinkers, philosophers and the like, who would have agreed with Paul's assessment of the sad state of humanity. Uh, The great Roman Stoic philosopher Seneca, by the way. He's the uncle of uh, Gallio, spoken of in Acts 18. Well, I think I'm digressing, but this Roman philosopher Seneca, according to the Bible scholar F.F. Bruce, exalted the moral virtues. He exposed hypocrisy. He acknowledged the pervasive character of evil, and he practiced and encouraged others to practice a daily self-examination. Seneca believed that the great mass of humanity was pervasively evil. What I'm trying to help us to see is that Paul is not the only person to think in the way that he does. Not only were there devout Jews who kept the law in order to avoid corruption, there were Gentiles who also practiced a number of different methods in order to do the same. And so as we begin chapter 2, Paul is carrying on a dialogue with a person just like that, whether he be a Jew or a Gentile, and he begins this way, "'Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges.'" He's referring to the person who reads Romans 1 and says, Right, Paul, I know the people just like that. The ones you're describing, filled with lust and unrighteousness, full of strife and slander, people who are boastful of all the evil they do, to which Paul says, So you agree, do you, that those who do these things deserve judgment? Well, hang on, because it's going to get just a bit bumpy for the basically good person as well. In chapter 1, when Paul was describing the sins of the whole world, he's using the third-person plural, those people out there. He uses the words they and them and themselves. He uses these words over 15 times, but in chapter 2, he gets personal. He uses the second-person singular, you or yourself, and he repeats it here about 12 times. His finger is outstretched, and he's tapping someone right in the chest. Yeah, you. I'm talking to you, buddy. You personally, you the basically good person, you are the one who feels so secure in judging the sins of others, those degenerates. Yes, you, you are no better than they are. See, the greatest human weakness is the tendency to overestimate ourselves and to underestimate God. We overestimate ourselves when we compare ourselves to others and we come out superior to them. We hear about other people's sins and easily condemn them, and we underestimate God when we're convinced that he's genuinely impressed by us. So let's begin to study this text and let's get real, shall we? Three reasons why we must not feel morally superior to others. Here's the first of them. We are just as guilty. Paul says, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Now, wait a minute, we say. I don't do chapter 1, verse 18. I don't suppress the truth of God. And though I've sinned, I don't do verse 32. I don't give my approval to those who practice wicked things. But let's unpack that. Let's start with 118. So you say you don't suppress the truth of God. Remember, we suppress the truth of God whenever we fail to give thanks to him, whenever we fail to honor him as we should. How are you doing? Still feeling fairly good about yourself? But you say, I'm not guilty of all that sexual stuff, really. What if what goes on in your private thoughts gets played for the general public to see? What then? And how are you doing in covetousness, greed, materialism, anger, gossip? How about slander? Ah, but you respond, true, I'm not perfect, but I try my best, and I certainly don't give approval to people who practice this stuff. Let me ask you another question. 
You ever watched or been amused at a television show that parades a set of values like adultery and divorce and homosexuality and sexual permissiveness and greed and murder and simply watched to be entertained and secretly you were delighted? Then you not only do what God condemns, you approve of what God condemns. You're just as guilty as everyone else. So you don't go out and feel morally superior to someone else. That's Paul's point to the morally good people. And then Paul adds insult to injury. He gives a second point. When we judge, he says, we're condemning ourselves. Listen again to what Paul says in verse 3. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourselves, that you will escape the judgment of God? See, it's interesting to notice that Jesus said pretty much the same thing in Matthew 7, verse 2. He says, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. In a real way, we, the good people, are all setting the stage for our own judgment. We're guilty. We're condemning ourselves, and then we're something more. If you're given to feelings of self-righteousness, you're really not going to like what I say next. God will not make special exceptions in your case. Some of us believe he will. We think, yeah, there are special mitigating circumstances in my life. God will notice the stress I'm under. He'll notice my bad upbringing, my individual situation. But we're wrong. God is still righteous. He's not tolerating even your sins that seem so slight in your eyes. In other words, God will not say to others, you're condemned, and then say to us, well, you're just as bad, but I'll overlook it because I know you have special circumstances. God is just, so we have no reason at all in feeling morally superior to others. Feeling morally superior to anyone is an illusion based on hypocrisy. Romans 2 verses 1 to 5 tells us quite simply that no one will escape the judgment of God. It's easily a part of our human nature to feel entitled or morally superior to others. Gossip, slander, and judgment are common not only in our culture in general, but also in the Christian culture. After the break, Dr. Neufeld will discuss how we can help ourselves break the cycle of judgment. Thanks for listening, and I'd like to invite you to an experience of a lifetime with Back to the Bible Canada this coming fall. From October 30th to November 9th, we'll be journeying to the Holy Land, that's right, to Israel. Join myself, Dr. John Neufeld, and other ministry guests as we experience the journeys of Paul and David and walk where Jesus walked. To find out more, visit our website at backtothebible.ca, or you can even give us a call right now at 1-800-663-2425. Now, let's get back to Romans with Dr. John Neufeld. We've been speaking about God's Word to basically good people, or people who are basically good in their own eyes. And if that's you, there are three things to remember to overcome your illusions. Listen to the beginning of verse 4. Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience? Here's the first thing to remember. You must not underestimate the value of God's kindness. The Greek word for presume literally means to look down on something or someone or to underestimate the value of something, to sneer at something. It means to despise something. In other words, the self-righteous hypocrite actually despises God's kindness, his restraint towards us and his patience with us. And why is that? Because we don't think we need it. 
you're sure that your lifestyle is a cut above and actually makes the grade. So when the call goes out for repentance, for renewal, for confessing sins, for getting right with God in your heart, many of us don't think that kind of stuff is for us. That's why we've never responded to that kind of stuff. But you know who should respond, and your attitude proves that you see no genuine value in coming to God and pleading for mercy in your case. See, that's the first illusion. We underestimate the value of God's kindness. And you need to see that. You need to stop miscalculating how badly you need mercy and grace and kindness and even pity. Here's now the second thing that you need to remember to help us to get beyond our illusions. You must not misunderstand the meaning of God's kindness. I want you to look again at verse 4. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Here's what typically happens. An individual who feels he or she is a basically good person finds that in her life or his life, everything is going quite well. They feel blessed. If they have kids, their kids are basically good kids. Their job or career is going well. Their marriage, it's holding together. Not like those busted up people who are out there getting a divorce. I mean, they have friends and good ones. Their retirement account is growing as it should. And all of that, they reason, is because of the kindness of God. Now, you might have even concluded that that's you. So you tell yourself, I give God glory for all of that. But here's the kicker. It's easy to think that God is kind to us because he approves of our moral behavior. Let me give you an example. It's an easy one. Imagine the person who's sleeping with his girlfriend. No thunderbolt from heaven has stopped him. Everything is okay. Maybe a few people in church disapprove, but they're hypocrites anyway. And after all, sleeping with your girlfriend is not like visiting a prostitute. And God hasn't punished you. And besides, everything is going so well in your life. And so you believe it's okay. See, the same mistake is made of the greedy person or the person who assassinates others' character or reputation, the person disobedient to parents or the person who is heartless to the needy. But God is kind because he's wanting to give you time to repent. That's why no lightning bolt has hit you on the head. His kindness might not lead you to repentance, but his kindness is an invitation to repentance. It should give you hope that mercy might be available for you. Yeah, even for you. And Paul uses three words here. The first is kindness. That simply refers to the benefit that God brings in our lives. And kindness is not always expressed when things go well for us. God might express his kindness through a tragedy, for that tragedy might give us an insight into our lives. The second is the word forbearance. Now, if you're using an NIV, a New International Version, it uses the word tolerance, but I think that word gives the wrong impression. Uh, The original Greek word is the word anoche. It means to hold something back. In other words, God is bearing us or putting up with us, so to speak. He's groaning or holding back, giving some time for us to repent. You know, the problem I have with the word tolerance is that we understand it the way we do in Canadian society today. For us, tolerance means we accept any form of behavior without making a judgment on it. See, in this sense, we should know that God's not tolerant at all. He makes a radical judgment on all our behavior. But there is a sense in which tolerance might be a good word. You know, when engineers speak about tolerance, they're often speaking about stress levels. In other words, they may speak about the tolerance level on a bridge, how much weight it can sustain before it collapses. 
That's the idea. That's why forbearance, I think, is a better word. God is bearing our sins, not tolerating them. He is holding up under them. That's what's going on in your life when everything seems to be fine. But And this is the key in the way we use tolerance today. It needs to be said that God is not at all tolerant in the way we think. He did not tolerate the ancient world when he destroyed it with a flood. He did not tolerate the pride of Pharaoh when he devastated his country through a series of 10 plagues and then drowned his entire army in the Red Sea. He didn't tolerate Jerusalem for her sins when he sent the Babylonians to destroy the entire city of Jerusalem, killing many of her citizens. God is not tolerant. He is forbearing. He bears us. He puts up with us for the sake of his mercy. The third word is the word patience. And the fact that God has not destroyed us means that he's right now practicing both kindness and forbearance. And why is he doing that? He's giving you time to wake up, come to your senses, and repent. See, when a person lives in a world of illusion, they underestimate the value of God's kindness, and they misunderstand the meaning of his kindness, which leads to verse 5. Paul says, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. See, I want you to imagine the following illustration. Imagine with me for a moment a person who has the prettiest little house that you've ever seen on the bottom side of an enormous dam. Life's good on the downside of the dam. There's always enough water, but not too much. The weather is often fine. The sun shines, the grass blooms, the birds sing. But what the person doesn't realize is that the water behind the dam is rising at an alarming rate, putting stress levels on the dam that will eventually give way. But no one knows that on the far side of the dam. To them, it seems like life is going on as it always has. This can be seen as an allegory. The dam represents God's kindness, his forbearance and patience. It's that which makes life at the bottom of the dam so livable. But the water is rising. That represents God's wrath against our sin. And we're not paying attention. And from our perspective, everything is as it has always been. But when the day of wrath comes, it sweeps down on us with inconceivable fury. And all that is left is for us to look on with complete astonishment. We have misunderstood the meaning of kindness. Listen to me. If you're living in sin and rebellion, I know that today is a day of grace. I don't know about tomorrow, and and neither do you. May I make a plea with you? Do not presume upon God. If there's business that you need to do with God, do it now. Get on your knees. Get right with God. We must overcome our illusions. Don't underestimate God's kindness, and don't don't misunderstand it. See it for what it is. See, I think it's possible that you might be one of the people that Paul is speaking to. You might have been thinking you're safe with God because of your own good behavior, and you've not paid attention to the sins in your own life. Would you take my invitation and come to Christ? Why don't you confess your sins? Finally and ultimately, free yourself of your own self-confidence. I'm making an invitation. Become confident in the kindness of God. In just a little while, we're going to learn more about the cross and, and why we can count on Christ and his cross. But it's such a mistake to count on ourselves. So join with me in a brief prayer as I pray with you this prayer. Heavenly Father, I know how easy it has been for me to overestimate myself and underestimate you. Beginning to see what a sinner I really am and what a need I have for mercy. Lord, bring me to the place where I trust in what you've done and not in what I've done. 
I give myself to Christ and to Him alone. In Jesus' name and for His sake. John, I'm confident that there's people out there today that have prayed that prayer with you. Uh, They're seeking God's forgiveness. They're seeking a new relationship with Him. And uh, from this point forward, uh, maybe they're asking themselves, where do I go now? What would you say to them? I think the first place to start is you're not going to be able to journey with Christ on your own. And the very first place is that you've got to find yourself a local church that teaches the Bible faithfully. And you've got to find within that local church a series of friends and some people that will be able to walk with you through those initial stages of Christian growth. And those initial stages will include things like uh, learning how to pray, learning how to read your Bible on a daily basis, beginning to understand that, uh, learning also to trust in the Holy Spirit whose power will give you the ability to live the life that God wants you to live. I mean, all those kind of things happen within the context of a local church. But I might also say, keep listening to Back to the Bible as well. I mean, we are committed to giving you a verse-by-verse treatment of Scripture. If you just keep listening to us on a daily basis, you're going to find the truths whereby you can live. You know, John, one of the things we've discovered at Back to the Bible, uh, and it's a sort of a funny statistic, and it's just that, but that unless a person is actually in the Word themselves, a minimum of four times a week, statistically, the choices they make and the decisions they make are a little different than if they didn't know God at all. So how much we want to encourage people to get into the Word for themselves, to take time to read it, to reflect on it, and to respond to it with their lives? You know, that's an amazing uh, thing that you've just shared with us, uh, Ben, because I, I am completely convinced that's true. I found that in my own life. I've gotten sloppy and lazy in my own spiritual life. That's exactly what's happened to me. And uh, I think there are others who've walked along with the Lord who will see the same thing. How much more so when we're just starting out in our Christian faith? So the, the reality is that we're going to find out that we don't live by bread alone, as Jesus has said, and that is by the daily necessities of life. We must live daily by the Word of God. There needs to be a Word that carries and sustains us. And I think if we learn to do that in some systematic way, in which we're either reading through the Bible every year or in some kind of a devotional pattern that's leading us in a direction, that's really going to help. Yeah, and if you're a young person, we haven't left you out. We'd really encourage you to visit indoubt.ca or download the mobile application InDoubt to help you walk and journey with Christ every day. Thanks so much, John, and we look forward to all that God has in store as we continue to study Romans tomorrow. I hope today's Bible teaching from Dr. Newfeld has been an encouragement to you. I pray that if you've unconfessed sin in your life that you prayed along with Dr. Neufeld, that you've been able to swallow your pride and make things right with God today. Tomorrow, Dr. Neufeld continues with Romans chapter 2, focusing on how God will judge the world. I hope you'll join us tomorrow on Back to the Bible Canada. At Back to the Bible Canada, we're committed to teaching God's Word and seeing lives changed, and God has been at work. We're encouraged and humbled when people share with us how this program has had an impact upon their spiritual journey. Fiona emailed us to say, Over the years, I've enjoyed the ministry of Back to the Bible. I'm so glad you're ministering to our generation with solid biblical teaching. It's been such a blessing. If this program is playing a part in your walk with Jesus, 
let us know. Give us a call at 1-800-663-2425 or write us by emailing info at backtothebible.ca. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day.